Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Tonight, we'll be watching Once Bitten from 1985, starring Jim Carrey, Lauren Hutton, and Cleavon Little. And we'll be following that with Tom Holland's Fright Night, also from 1985, starring William Ragsdale and Christopher Sarandon. We'll be right back after the tune. Stay tuned. Oh, man. Once bitten. <laughs> Once bitten. Yeah, the, the, the 1985 vampire double feature that I never knew mm-hmm. we needed. But yeah, when you, we were, it, when, you, when you proposed these, you were like, yeah, maybe we should start with Once Bitten. And after I watched them, I'm like, I see why we started with Once Bitten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because what we're really looking at here is two movies where they're vampire films. Mm-hmm. They get varying amounts of flack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some, <clears throat> some deserved. Some, some, some judgments. I, I would, I actually, I kind of withhold. But they're good films. Actually, uh, Three Speeds Once Bitten is probably one of the very first songs I downloaded on, on like iTunes when I was a kid. <laughs> it was like I think I searched for it like when Napster came out. Not proud of it, but when Napster came out, that's how hardcore I was about that movie. I love that oh music so much. I mean, I think yeah. I think it's honestly a testament. I always say like, you know, if you could pirate things and you did pirate things and then chose to pay for it pay anyway, for that's yeah. even more a testament in my mind to the quality of a piece. <laughs> that's pretty much my entire birthday massacre stuff. Sorry, Chibi. <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, I am like, yeah, Once Bitten and Fright Night soundtracks have a special place in, in my playlist for, you know, putting to bed any any theory that I might be like into heavy metal or death metal. I have an assortment of heavy metal and death metal, too. Like, I loved Cradle of Filth and... You know, I have a couple of of Metallica pieces, you know, from before anything in the 90s. Um, But yeah, I I think that these are two really good films. Mm -hmm. But Once Bitten is definitely the piece where it comes under fire for a whole lot of stuff. Because if you're Mm -hmm. like, when you watch it, like in the 90s, and you're growing up and you're a teen, you're not thinking about like... You know, you're not thinking about all the steps we're going to take in the future. You know, you know, you're just you're watching it and you're just like, oh, this is cool. Right. It's, you know, know, it's a body played for laughs comedy without a ton of depth to it. And that's okay. Like, there's not necessarily anything wrong with a comedy that's just, you know, just here for laughs and uh, not perhaps for character development. (laughs) But it's a sexy vampire horror comedy. Right, right. Heavy on the comedy, you know? Heavy on the comedy. And it's better if we laugh about it and try not to think too much about it. But unfortunately, the longer we stare at it, the more we've yeah, th- that's, we thought about it. Yeah, I feel like that's, that's kind of the moral of the whole movie is, <laughs> like, we talked about, like, off, you know, off mic, a little bit about the, the lack of a clearly spelled out moral in this movie. And mm. I think because they didn't spell it out, like, the unofficial moral that's implied is just, like, don't think too deeply about anything, because once you right. do, it all unravels. It'll just piss you off. Yeah. It'll just piss you off. And yeah. you're not going to like, and that's just it. That's the first thing. The other thing is also, um, <clears throat> I would also say that the, the, the moral that should have been mm-hmm. there 
is don't rush sex, right? Or don't rush anything in your life where you think that it's important to you. Um, Karen Copens's character, um, she really doesn't get, in my opinion, she doesn't really get the screen time she deserves. Mm-hmm. And there's all these moments with the parents and... Um, God, the but parents. You know, let's <laughs> hop in for just one second. Yeah. Let's just do the, the, the synopsis. So yeah, basically, please. Mark Kendall is basically this... You know, uh, played by Jim Carrey. This is his first, you know, major. Um, this is his first major screen breakthrough um, before he went on to *In Living Color*, and then, you know, did *Ace Ventura*, and then, you know, really got taken seriously when he did *The Truman Show*. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will be honest, this is one of the few films where you actually get to see how good of an actor Jim Carrey is. Uh, because it's not really until we get back to the Truman Show that we feel all these different um, emotions that he can accomplish. Because most times he's just sort of, you know, uh, stretching his face and making mm-hmm. funny faces and, and, you know, showing how flexible and Gumby-like he is. Um, yeah, he had like a real gentleness at points in, in this movie yes. that I think is easy to underappreciate. But he is so talented and so dynamic and it's so nice to see that like when he's so young and so fresh on things like and again uh-huh. thanks to thanks to one spitten for really thrusting him onto the scene yeah. because so a service to the is, world there's, there's one positive that came out of that at least which is that jim carrey's career started mm-hmm. so the other thing is um looking at the story it's it's basically jim carrey's basically trying to peer pressure his girlfriend into sex in an ice cream truck mm-hmm. and since she won't put out he gets his friends and uh goes to who are also virgins and and goes to a, yeah and also friends uh, in heavy quotation marks <laughs> yeah really heavy quotation marks because these are not you know friends like we would use friends in american pie from 1999 like stifler's your friend yeah like these yeah. may be the people you hang out with but that does not mean they are a friend <laughs> These, yeah, maybe friends, but they don't give you good counsel. Let's also no. say that too. These are not no. people you should be taking advice from. Exactly. Um, so, at the same time, there is a beautiful countess whose name is Countess. Such depth. Um, you know, played by the the you know the gorgeous Mary Lawrence Lauren Hutton, uh, who is a model. And um, she needs a transfusion of blood, as she puts it, every every century. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, she becomes old. Mm-hmm. Uh, she doesn't Specifically die, virgin she blood. Old. Yeah, she needs virgin blood from the femoral artery. And, um, yeah, in, coming with her is her, um, her black manservant. Everybody keeps saying it's a vampire. It's not. It's like Straker or Renfield. She has her black man servant, who is played by Cleavon Little, who is, you know, uh, probably one of the greater acting legends of all time, um, Blazing Saddles, and and uh, he was also, you know, everybody's always like, oh, he was Blazing Saddles, he was Blazing Saddles, he was also Super Soul and Vanishing Point. I don't know how the mm-hmm. fuck anybody misses that whenever they're like going over like the credits. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to note. You know, started in Oklahoma, got a full scholarship to Juilliard, and just like rocketed into the sky from there. Uh, we lost him way too early at the age of fifty-three, mm-hmm. uh, but his last role was fucking horror. You know, <laughs> hell yeah, uh, nineteen ninety-two in Tales from the Crypts episode. This will kill you. Um, he was he was a shining star, and he will forever be missed. Um, a lot of people think he was a vampire, but he wasn't. He was a retainer. Um, 
uh, you know, that's the other thing that I will come back to. Um, so basically, the Countess and her retainer, uh, Sebastian, uh, are out on the town looking for, you know, uh, pure virgin blood uh, for the Countess's transfusion. And uh, she needs that third transfusion before Halloween. Otherwise, she becomes old. Doesn't die, just becomes old. Yeah, the worst and, thing um, a woman can do, as we know. The worst thing a woman can do is age. Right, yeah. yeah. Susan Summers is still pretty hot. So is Iman. Uh, actually, a lot of the women that we still, you know, we've got even tired of music videos today, like with Got Milf, like written right across the t-shirts. So, uh, <laughs> gonna call bullshit on that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Mark ends up bumping into the Countess and, uh, after a little, after a little ruckus and, uh, the singles meet, they, uh, they end up absconding back to the Countess's, uh, villa in the hills where she bites the buttons off his shirt while mark you know does the real sexy thing you do when you're about to initiate coitus is uh talk about your mom Mm -hmm. and then she bites his uh, femoral artery and begins mark's transformation into a vampire mark of course wakes up and thinks he got laid goes to back to his high school reports back to his friends who are enthusiastic about it whereas his girlfriend is not so fucking happy and kind of understandably <laughs> Shocking. so. And that's kind of the beginning of where my willing suspension of disbelief flies out the window mm-hmm. because I've seen boyfriends cheat on girlfriends in high school and usually the minimum is a knee to the crotch and every guy in the room grabbing their groin in sympathy mm-hmm. as, we, as we're kind of like, wow, that must have hurt. Um, but yeah, no, that's not what happened here. Instead, she just kind of like huffs and walks off and then, um, is kind of sorry for him. And that's kind of yeah. like where and it flies out. still the sympathetic the entire time. Yeah. The entire mm, fucking no. time. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if any, if any boyfriend I had in high school showed up and was like, Hey, <laughs> by the way, I just slept with a hot, very adult woman. I'd be like, okay, cool. So I'm not your cup of tea. Farewell and fuck you. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that would be the mature way of handling mm-hmm. it. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, violence might be implied, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Yeah. Nor there. Right. Nor there. But maybe a little bit down there. Uh-huh. But yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing that happens is Mark starts to realize that he's uh, he's 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 transforming. You know, he's losing his pallor. He's having sexy vampire dreams. Um, he's suddenly comfortable sleeping in a chest during the day. Yeah, drinking, you know, squeezing the blood out of raw meat and drinking it, Tasty. and uh, starts to suspect that he's becoming a vampire. And uh, yeah, then he realizes that uh, you know his uh, his one night stand. Uh, wants more than one night as she keeps trying to uh, stalk him three which is the other part where i'm kind of like <laughs> she's the other part where i'm kind of like god damn i'd have given her so much more credit than than, than, than jim carrey but okay um and then yeah so he starts to become a vampire um sorry, when robin starts to realize this she uh, consults the the bookstore owner, oh, who is God. also the local Van Helsing, who is also, again, some of the worst counsel ever, um, implying that it's worse for you to be a virgin than for you to be a vampire. And uh, also, 
I think probably faked a Pakistani accent. The most sure definitely. Most, most definitely. definitely right? yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was also. Um, and then you know, Robin and uh, Mark's friends they go to uh, you know, you know they they uh, Mar- Robin goes to Mark's friends and they say you know she tells him that there will be you know two little bites on on the inside of his thigh and uh, oh, that God. that they need to check and so what ensues is a homophobic moment in the showers and um, another Academy Award winning moment for this film. And um, yeah, and Mark's Mark's best line is actually right there. He's like, "Great help! Did it ever occur to either of you to just ask me?" Yeah. And then they realize that Robin is being kidnapped by the vampires, and uh, it's Halloween, which we kind of grace over. Yep. And um, yeah, then Mark is trapped and strapped to a gynecologist's chair. Of and, course, naturally. Uh, is about to get his third transfusion, but uh, instead his girlfriend, who the fuck knows why, <laughs> frees him and uh, decides to, like, out of basically pity fucks him for about 10 seconds in a coffin and the countess becomes old. And I will just say that, that, that you know, that's... And then they decide that they're going to do it a second time, which is also another moment where you're like, how the fuck did that happen? Because, yeah. like, once I would have understood, but second uh-huh. time... Like, see, I'd have kind of made them work for the it. The one time for survival, I understand. But yeah. when she was explicitly... The Countess is like, it can't have been that fast. And Robin is like, oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> what part of that would compel you to go, oh, yeah, let's do it again? <laughs> Right. Like, there is not a chance in hell that Robin no. got where she needed to go during that experience. No. 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 <laughs> Round two so is not going to change there much. Just, let's, let's, let's sum this up. There's a lot mm-hmm. of great talent. There's a lot of great music mm-hmm. that wasn't released for quite some time. But it's all clouded and obscured by big, puffy, gray, what-the-fuck clouds. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the problem. You see... Um, so that said, I'm going to say something that's probably an unpopular opinion compared to some of the other horror hosts. Um, I have a a poster to my right, and it is, uh, the poster pictures the 1980s original Freddy Krueger, painted by Gary Pullen. And on the right side is, uh, the 2010 version played by Jackie Earl Haley. And, uh... It shows that, you know, Freddy is part of our permanent pantheon of, of, you know, horror icons. And when we already don't have enough female horror icons, I have something to say about getting, of the idea of getting rid of Lauren Hutton's Countess. Um, what the fuck is wrong with you? Don't get rid of her. Upgrade her. Mm-hmm. You know, people are like, oh my god, we should get rid of Vampirella. Firstly, her full title is Vampirella of Draculon. Again... Shouldn't be getting rid of Vampirella. Shouldn't be getting rid of the Countess. Should be deepening their backstories. Yes. Yeah, okay. To backtrack, are people really saying we should just get rid of the Countess? Because I have not. Some people heard are this. like, yeah, we should just get rid of them. Sometimes, yeah. Okay, people are like, she's... yeah, we should just get rid of them. Also, where would the plot be if she wasn't there? <laughs> That's well, yeah. Well, they just like it's again. It's one of those things where you just want to get rid of one spit and altogether because no. it just doesn't. Because it didn't age well. No, call me a one-spitten apologist, but like, no, it's fine. No. There's there's merits to it. I mean, for Christ's sake, Freddy Krueger's a fucking pedophile. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to put this like I just want to put this out there. Freddy Krueger's a murdering fucking pedophile. Okay, and everybody wants to do all this 
feminist lens analysis on the Countess. Look, nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's necessary, especially with this film. We need that lens. We need to do a real-world analysis of everything that is problematic with this film. Mm-hmm. But not a, we shouldn't be throwing out our, our horror icons just because the film didn't age well. Uh, we need to take the film and, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe get some female executive producers which weren't there the first time (laughs) yeah i know maybe a female director you know Mm -hmm. because uh that might have helped maybe um some more female leads yeah and also that could have also helped just give women any opportunity to develop their characters and clearly look once bitten is not the standout place for this like nobody developed their character and once bitten you don't know a goddamn thing about anybody except that they want to fuck like that's that's all you get but (laughs) you're not even sure about that (laughs) right and that's only some of them and we think maybe like like this is something where like i know we're not fully in fright night yet but like Fright Night did an excellent job of this because Epic there job. was a huge amount of time. Like I'll get it a little bit more into the the working process, but they had two weeks of rehearsal process before they right. even saw a camera. And that's because the writer came from, Tom Holland came from a theater background, but that was time that they used for the whole cast to read the script, do do read-throughs together, do revisions, do rehearsals, and it gave the characters time to develop all like develop themselves really so christopher sarandon who plays jerry dandridge he came in and was like look this vampire's fine but he needs more he needs to be human so he developed this whole secondary plot line of the girl he's going after being a like reborn version of a lost love which tries to humanize a villain to give him motivation beyond just ooh thirsty for blood and so if you gave just an iota of back thought to the countess and to any of the characters and once bitten it could be such a dynamic movie and it's like it's such a shame that we don't get it because there are so many interesting backstories the countess Mm -hmm. could have like Okay, right off the bat, she's hot. She's cool. She's like, when do you get a vampire that's, you know, eighties glam she unabashedly? A while. Mm-hmm. She's, she's long lived. She's built up this whole Which vampire harem. Which means she harem. has a story, and yeah. we need to know that story. Uh-huh. The, and I love how her name is fucking Countess, and mm-hmm. we have no clue who she is. Yep. But one of her vampire children is listed as Mall Flanders Vampire uh-huh. in IMDb. <laughs> uh, in case anybody doesn't know. And I wouldn't expect you to. Maul Flanders was the name of a novel by Daniel Defoe, English novelist Daniel Defoe, who's most famous for writing Robinson Crusoe. Again, one more time. I just want, I I remember reading this the first time going, what the fuck? How is it we have more detail on one vampire's name in the IMDb than we do in the entire, on most of the characters? Because for me, the other character that I would have really loved to have seen the backstory on with Sebastian and his relationship with the Countess. Holy I, I shit. would have loved to have understand. Like, maybe the Countess freed Sebastian. Maybe the, you know, maybe Sebastian saved the Countess. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know how that worked out. You know, um, Lauren Hutton is originally from South Carolina. Would have been really cool if, you know, if Sebastian was originally, oh, I don't know, from the Caribbean. Yeah. And enslaved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, saved, you know, Lauren from some sort of fate worse than death. And, you know, yeah. maybe you know, they, you know, that's how they yeah. ended up being their duo. Let's talk about that Sebastian for sense. a minute. Let's talk about mm-hmm. fucking Sebastian for a minute because yeah. I have some paragraphs written. <laughs> yes. So, like... 
Sebastian is so clearly the standout in this movie for me. He's mm. the most fun. Cleavon Little is just incredible. And Sebastian brings some of the actual, real, genuine moments of joy and levity in the script where the rest of the laughs come from gross teenage innuendo. Like, there are mm. really genuine moments from Sebastian. Unfortunately, he is, one, undeveloped, and two, also hits so many character stereotypes, it's not even funny. So, like, just a couple of them, like, He's obviously, you get the the gay best friend trope. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think we all know this one at this point. It's a character or unfortunately sometimes a real person who is the token gay guy typically for a straight woman. It's a a role of non-threatening masculinity, a man who will perform a feminine role and is frequently the prop for a makeover montage. And their function is basically to be a supporting character in the life of the female main character. And while their sexual orientation is a defining personality trait, if not the defining personality trait, the GBF on TV, like on TV, are rarely allowed to display any overt signs of sexuality. They might talk a lot about sexuality or just make many tongue-in-cheek references, but you never get to see him have a fully realized relationship of his own, especially not relationships of a sexual nature. Because, of course, this is all about the woman, after all, and seeing gay sex on screen was considered a scandalous distraction from the real heterosexual love story of the woman that, you know, that the plot follows. So the gay best friend trope also overlaps heavily with the very similar pet homosexual trope, which feels uncannily accurate for Sebastian, a kept man who serves entirely to follow the countess around like an accessory and literally, literally retrieve her food and outfits so he's like a working dog basically (laughs) yes i'm sorry so sorry can't undersell the value of that (laughs) then of course again again. what the fuck Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah oh look another way he's useful actual fuck yep yeah no no no. he's a a mix between like a pocket pooch like a yorkie but a working dog because oh look he has jobs too Mm. Uh huh. Also, Jesus. also, he's the token black friend. So I'm just right. gonna straight up include part of the description in a from movie the TV where tropes no page. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Not a single other black person. Yep. Yep. Here's no. the here's just a section of the description from TV tropes because they sum it up pretty clearly. I quote: Your black best friend is sassy. She's never too busy to lend an ear or come along on your wacky schemes. She's flawless to the point of being unreal. Is it because she has no love life, no apartment, and no family? It's hard to say, but there's one thing for sure. She has a cell phone and never ignores your calls. Note, this is a black character whose role is either A, um, either A revolves almost entirely around a white character, or B serves as a conscious effort for a white character or writer to appear inclusive. Mm. I mean, come on! Sebastian literally lives in the Countess's house with no resources or community of his own, serves her hand and foot as a prop to her antics, and is the only non-white person there who can offer a sassy chiding to the literal Confederate soldier she keeps in her basement. I mean, there's also clearly a huge conversation to be had about the entirely servile role of a black person to a white woman. But as it turns out, when you Google black butler trope, um, everything that comes up is about the anime black butler and not, in fact, about racial dynamics in media. (laughs) But it is safe to say that the optics of this are really fucking bad and also really call the history of the duo into question. Because how long exactly has he been serving her? I know that you're 
going with the he's not a vampire theory. But if he has any kind of extended lifespan, like she does, if it was at least the last 200 years and in the U.S., then, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's just it. And, and you know what? The whole thing is that's the fucked up part. We don't uh-huh. really know where they come from. They could have just exactly. as easily come from France. Exactly. They could have just could, as easily. They could, could be of course, anything. Because he said, she said that was done, the painting of her was done a long time ago mm-hmm. in Europe. You don't know if she's Dutch. You don't mm-hmm. know if she's French. You don't know what the fuck right. she is. Right. The whole the problem is, is the lack of character development. Right. Like, what would and it have the, been the, like to be actually, a gay black also, man 100 years ago, explain, 200 years ago? One thing I can't explain or theorize about is that the idea is that a retainer is somebody who drinks human... Um, Jesus, what's wrong with me today? All right, so the, the difference between a retainer and a vampire... Mm-hmm is essentially that a retainer has the ability to drink vampire blood. They're sustained by vampire blood. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they have the ability to go into the daylight and do what the vampire needs them to do. Mm -hmm. Um, They also have increased strength, which would have also been awesome to watch. Like like watching him kick Mark's ass or the boys. Um, um, There's also the... um, resistance to sunlight increased strength you know doesn't get affected by any of the other things a vampire gets but if he dies he becomes a vampire or if the vampire if the countess had died he would become uh theoretically would eventually become um a vampire there's different ways of that story goes you know the the retainer always goes different ways it's essentially it's like it's an extension of the idea of a familiar mm-hmm. um yeah once again making di- him a pet <laughs> yes without but but that's that is terrible optics mm-hmm. but a i don't think the writer even knew that and absolutely not B, yeah there's no way the writer knew that not, oh yeah not i'm gonna get there i'm gonna get there <laughs> yeah well and i'll let you do that you have fun with that one but a the writer probably didn't know. B the 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 fact of the matter is if you're a retainer, they come in all shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. they come in all genders and colors. It doesn't matter. It's just the fact no. that they're a human they're a human pet to a vampire. Mm-hmm. That which it's already kind of demeaning. It's just not as good as it's really made even worse by the yes. fact that it's a black absolutely gay man it is not the problem is not woman. the idea of the retainer it's the idea of let's cast the only black person in this movie as the retainer that's the issue <laughs> yeah also one of the most one of the more successful black mm-hmm. actors incredibly of talented era. yeah and it's yes it's the guy just... came out of fucking julia uh-huh. and he got to play a, a, he was yeah. on broadway he had every leading role under the sun and then he showed up and mm-hmm. did this and again fun but like it just it kills me because i know this is a movie without a lot of nuance in it but there was an opportunity to make such an interesting nuanced character here that they just sailed right over and again not a surprise given a the total lack of complexity in the movie and also b i just i feel like we need to recognize too that this was being filmed during the rise of the aids epidemic and that was a time that was not kind to gay men in media so having a gay character who was not either villainized or explicitly the butt of the joke was 
pretty damn hard to find in the 80s. So, like, given... It, it, it sucks to say it, but, like, given what happens in the shower scene, like, the characterization mm. of Sebastian seems almost yeah. charitable, which is not a redeeming factor. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm no. not trying to be an apologist for this, but, like... No. I, I do understand it was ter- the time. Both terrible. Yeah, it's, actually, it, it's all it's all it. bad. It's a time when it's a time when audiences were definitely getting the wrong idea. Yes. It's a time when audiences were being fed a bunch of propaganda and horseshit, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's definitely a time when there was an anti-gay, anti-black agenda, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, it's one of those things where we should mm-hmm. take it, we shouldn't throw it away, we should develop it, and we should do it justice. We shouldn't. We should take Sebastian and again. Like, if you said to me, "We're not going to do once bitten ever again," I think that's a shame because I think Sebastian's character de- deserves an, an insane amount of depth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really care so much about the vampires in the basement. I do care a little bit about Mark and Robin. I think that that was kind of the human dynamic and how it relates to reality. I think that that's mm-hmm. also another thing. Um, the thing that kind of pisses me off about with the Mark and Robin conversation is that it's her fault that that he cheated Fucking on her. Fucking hell! Yeah, the, the fact that she that takes any off, culpability for this is brutal. there's there's actually another subtext there that I don't like, which is the idea of the good girl abstinence sub you know, uh-huh. slut shaming. Right, mm-hmm. I don't fucking like that at oh, all. Oh yeah, no, the, the whole thing that, is villainizing that, the sexuality of the countess. Yeah, versus how right. virtuous everyone's like Robin is. Other people are like, this is about promiscuity. It's like, dude, this is a virgin considering whether or not she wants to have sex for the first time, you know, um, and just not get married to the guy. Uh, that's not promiscuity. Mm-mm. Not even by the not that by no definition is that promiscuous. Uh, it's the the even to slut shame. Even the fact that that gets slut shamed is insane, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that a person—I mean—and and look at the nasty, nasty trap there. Because my father used to say this to me: "What is fame for men is shame for women." Yep. And I, and I, you know, he also, you know, came from an island where Catholicism was prevalent, right? And um, and in our family, you know, sex isn't really such a big deal you know love is is important you know sex is something you know you can have sex a million times there's no problem with sex premarital mm-hmm. sex no problem but you know it's uh it's about like but of course if a woman does it right then, right and right. then you're sitting there and you're going yeah look at that really nasty fucking double standard we oh, have yeah. in society and of course it's also just the most absurd part of it is like assuming a system of heterosexuality which most of the people who i think kind yeah. of maintain this mentality do like then you're facing the question of like if men are encouraged to sleep with everyone and women are told that they're sluts if they do who exactly do you think you're supposed to be sleeping with <laughs> yeah like the math simply does not work out <laughs> And then, of course, there's the, you know, just here on the aside, there's there's one of my favorite songs is by Garfunkel and Oates. It's called The Loophole. And they decided to do a song after after girls um, who were being told that they had to preserve their virginity for Christianity. They um, they started having anal sex instead. Um, the refrain goes, fuck me in the ass because I love Jesus. The good Lord would want it that way. I'll be sure to put a link to it in the notes. It's really great. Um, I think we should all watch it in light of what we're discussing here yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the continuing weird gender Have dynamics, you seen that? no. Oh, you gotta see that. Yeah. <laughs> we're watching that together after this. What are you great. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in the continuing a 
bizarre writing choices and B, weird gendered choices. I could yeah. not, one of the facts of the production that I could not get over is the incredibly lopsided naming schema because um, Robin was named after a girl that Jeffrey, that the writer Jeffrey House had dated one time. And mm-hmm. Mark was named for co-writer David Hines' nephew who died from leukemia. So <laughs> Mark gets this hero naming to memorialize this important boy in his life. Mm-hmm. And then Robin's like, yeah, I dated this hot chick one time. Her name was Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Like, everything about the writing is so fucking incoherent. And I always, like, I hate to judge this kind of thing because you never know how much was lost on the cutting room floor and, like, what the intentions were. But, man, like, there just wasn't a lot of content there. And there's also, I just think, not a lot of forward vision, too, which I think, again, is part of the time, too. Like, people they were churning out, like, a quick, you know one-off movie but like this has so much potential like if you're talking about a redo of this huge huge amount of potential and like we've talked about how other things like other horror franchises get spinoffs like if this turned into a successful movie now it could so easily turn into a whole like prequel series of the countess collecting that whole vampire harem along the way and there's so much fodder there for super interesting characters be amazing tv series absolutely that could work yeah but of course jeffrey house um did not have that vision or anything but he he immediately got his recompense for it because Mm. one of the top trivia facts on imdb about once bitten um i'm just gonna read it to you because oh i love it please do by the time the film was released writer jeffrey house had blown through his initial earnings and had to take a job as a video store clerk one day an oblivious customer remarked with the film whoever wrote this shouldn't be working in hollywood and an incensed house retorted you got your wish right (laughs) so i mean yeah i'm gonna be honest here's my here's my take on hollywood for the little bit of time that i've spent with it Mm -hmm. it's a miracle that any film gets made and anybody tells you that hollywood has its shit together (laughs) it doesn't unless we're talking about disney or some other major studio and even with major studio i use that that's like a maybe you'll get your shit together in time but when we're talking about this particular pile of shit uh when we're comparing once bitten to fright night Mm -hmm. the crazy thing is that there's not really that much of a difference in terms of premise in terms of what they were aiming for right no i shouldn't say i shouldn't say premise there's not that much of a difference in what they were aiming for yeah they were aiming for a sexy vampire Mm -hmm. horror movie because it was the 80s, and it was the time of vampires. Yeah, and both right? are on the side of the horror comedy, too. Like, era. sexy vampire horror comedy. Like, they're, they're, yeah. they're really... It's come out the same year, incredibly similar movies. And right. it's, it's... It was the advent of... It was the advent... Vampire 80s was a thing. Mm-hmm. Vampire 80s was... And that's the thing. I really think that, especially the last 10 years, we've had new retro wave on YouTube and all these great artists who absolutely worship the 80s. We have all these, you know, we have all these YouTube singers, stars. There's a market for 80s. There are people who were born in the 80s who are now like getting to their 40s who want those sorts of films. Mm -hmm. You could totally do that and probably make a shit ton of money. But I would say that it's one of those things where 
if you definitely learn from the mistakes of the past. Don't try and make it some campy, happy horse shit. Go back there and do exactly like the first thing that they did. Like the only there were smart things that they did. Yes. Firstly, they almost called the film Nightlife, which was a terrible name. Yeah. And it was supposed to be more somber and it was supposed to be about the realities of dating. That shit didn't work. No. Um, there was no reality of dating there because in any reality, Mark would have had his balls in his throat. <laughs> Secondly. Also, in any know, reality, there's not a chance in hell the Countess would have had anything to do with Mark. No, so. no. She would have been like, she would have been like, what was that about the 11 year old? Like, you yeah. know, like, yeah, that would have, because she's like, you know, I had the Vienna Boys Choir. I'd have been like, well, uh-huh. couldn't you just take it from the neck instead of taking it from the groin? Or does it have to be from the groin? I mean... Again, it does I not just... pay to ask questions about right. this movie. <laughs> so that was one thing. The other thing was also um, who almost got the leading roles. Because mm-hmm. um, it was originally inspired by and written for, but we, you know, we have no idea whether or not she ever said no to the part was Cassandra Peterson or Elvira. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing: uh, I don't. I think if we had cast Elvira as Lauren, you know, as as her redheaded self and not her yes. and not the character that she portrays, I think it would have been really cool to yeah. see Cassandra Peterson take her 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 part and and give it some depth, like Sarandon did in Fright Night. Mm-hmm. I also think that another person who would have probably been perfect for that role was Nina Hartley, who is a uh, porn actress, Nina Hartley, who is, al- is also beautiful, talented, um, blonde, young. Nina Hartley, uh, you know, one of the greatest feminists in the porn field right now, also would have been a fantastic choice. Probably would have taken one look at the script and been like, boys, I need a red pen <laughs> yeah. in about six months, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um... Yeah, and but the and we almost cast Michael J. Fox instead of um, instead of Jim Carrey. Or was mm-hmm. that for? No, I think was it was it? for this one because it was Charlie Sheen almost became yeah, the lead Charlie in Sheen, Fright Night. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. And would have been two totally yeah, different Michael animals. J. Fox right? was for so we almost got yeah, Michael two very J. Different Fox. Movies. Yep. Right. <laughs> the idea was floated of taking Michael J. Fox instead of Jim Carrey, which I'm sure every day Jim Carrey gets down on his hands and knees and thanks the cinema gods for. Because, like, Michael J. Fox was already on his way up. But, yeah, again, we would have probably had very different memories about this film if it was Michael J. Fox. Although I'm very happy that Michael J. Fox and Cassandra Peterson didn't take the roles yeah. with the present script because i don't think either of them though but again everybody's like oh my god if they'd have taken the roles it would have ruined their careers no no no, that's not true they would have been like no i'm not fucking saying that on stage and then they would have started changing things because that's one thing i do know about screenwriting i know that there are times when the actor goes i'm not fucking saying that or the actor will go i'm not fucking doing that and they'll they'll do some rewrites i think it's pretty clear like when you look at how the actors talked about how they got into Fright Night, pretty much right. everybody who was who was in it was like, 
my god when they told me they wanted me to do a vampire horror movie i was like absolutely fucking not but they were like please just read the script and then i loved it and i did it this once bitten is not a movie where anyone was like god i know i never wanted to do a horror comedy vampire movie in 1985 but that script just won me over like i think that's why they were using people like jim carrey who had very few credits to his name and i mean he's incredible but he was not an actor that had the pick of the litter when it came to things and Lauren Hutton, and this was also like, a time. A, yeah, she did a fantastic also, job, but this was not like virtuoso acting either. <laughs> this is also a time when the cinema field wasn't as flooded as it is yes, today. Yes. Right? That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing is that this is not a time when when, you know, when we were actively mm-hmm. thinking about movies the way that we do now. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, yeah, and or I mean there weren't as many horror critics yes. <laughs> as there are now, you know? <laughs> yeah, and Whereas like I any just schmuck. I just want to say, too, from an actor's perspective, like, nine times out of ten, unless you were a highly successful A-list actor, it's about what gets you a paycheck. So I never want to give anyone ever, like, ever give anyone any shade for taking a part in a movie where you're like, God, why did they do that movie? (laughs) Because sometimes you just need the paycheck. And there's also, there's nothing wrong. Some critics don't know that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You... For a lot of actors, it's survival. Like, one, it's survival. Two, it also... I don't think any actor should be shamed for taking on, like, a fluffy, goofy, dumb role either. Because it's fun sometimes to do something that's not Juilliard-quality work, but is just a ridiculous movie. (laughs) Or I would say, if you want to be a film critic in the horror industry and you want to tell people what roles they should and should not take, I have an idea. Maybe you should be really, really rich and support those actors then mm-hmm. and give them the paycheck that they'll need to support yes. themselves instead. Yeah. I really, like, I'm into bringing back like the Renaissance patron model, like patron of the arts. Like, please just pay yeah. me to exist and take whatever roles I'd like to. Like, that sounds brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind. I mean, that's what we're attempting with Patreon. But like, <laughs> it's, there's a reason that model worked. And the other thing too, again, like re-actors, this was not on the whole like i don't think this was a movie with bad acting like there was actually some very decent acting in this movie like we talked about how jim carrey like he's a great freaking actor and he has some really genuine moments here there's only so much an actor can do like a good actor can do with a bad script as well (laughs) so like anybody doing their best can still end up in a bad piece and i don't again i don't know what the writing process was like i don't know what the editing floor was like i'm not trying right. to put the blame on any one person's shoulder for what happened to one's bitten i mean but... i think that the producers and the the director should yeah. have been taking a harder look at things certainly I think that that's one thing certainly i would say that the writer probably should have thought more about what they were doing before mm-hmm. they turned that draft in but yeah mm-hmm um but yeah great movie yeah oh in yeah in terms of for its time great movie mm-hmm. for its time fan, you know good movie for its time great soundtrack fantastic cast um you know but it just it needed improvement yeah you know, i don't think i think that it's one of those things where and i'll say this all the time we remake things constantly that don't need to be remade like we didn't need to really remake a nightmare on elm street it was mm-hmm. nice that we did but you know it, it just its failure only showed that there's a certain equation to properly remaking films and that mm-hmm. equation is 
The equation is very simple for remaking films. Don't broke, don't fix what isn't broken. You know, um, Night of the Creeps, you know, from the 80s was a, was a B movie. It wasn't great. It was good, but it wasn't great. You know, James Gunn came along. He redid it. Um, he redid it as Slither. It's fantastic. It, it just took off and it skyrocketed. It was a fantastic piece. Um, the Blob from 1958, you know, wasn't remade for another 30 years. So not until 1988. Mm-hmm. Then they remade it um, with updated effects and a more, you know, an updated cast and everything. It was fantastic. Same idea here. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, this is the one time I would not update things for the modern era in terms of um, in terms of the time period. Yeah. I would still set it in the 80s. I think like that's one of the films that we should really remake. I also think we should redo The Witches of Eastwick because once Bitten always gets tossed in the same bin with either Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage or The Witches of Eastwick, neither of which really fit it, right? Um, but I really do think that if we ever remake this, we really should remake it in the 80s context. Because I think we, we owe it yep. to that time period to go back and really hit that big hair. And, yeah, and, absolutely. Know, hit that, that, that glamour and that shine. And yeah, that neon. and plus, you just could not have the singles phone, like phone call bar right. scene in a modern context. And what's the point I mean, of really remaking cool. the movie if you can't shit have that? that. Hit, hit Etsy afterwards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, this yeah. is a movie of the time, and I think it should stay that way. And I totally agree. Like, I am a person who, like, I roll my eyes so far back into my head every time I hear another fucking movie is getting a remake like i hate right. remakes and this is one where i'm like yes please give me the remake yeah. <laughs> so... and also the the remake of fright night that came out a few years ago mm-hmm. was fantastic you know mm-hmm. i also think that there's another one that came out around the same time um was the was tim burton's interpretation of dark shadows mm-hmm. which is a pretty long series it had a couple of movies it had a couple had many novels as well it's fantastic um burton's remake didn't make a lot of sense but it made it you know left audiences wanting more it really captured the 70s yeah and that was the thing it was that the brilliance of that piece was that it captured the time era and you know what it would really be nice to capture what it must have been like to be a black gay man in the 1980s it would Mm -hmm. must have been really nice to be a blonde vampire woman in the 1980s would have been very interesting to see those dynamics maybe in reference to the rest of the rest of the vampire community which mm-hmm. are probably a bunch of white wall street prick you know, yep. vampire men <laughs> you know yeah like imagine an army of patrick bateman ex- you know? i was like, literally just gonna say if every yeah. other vampire is a patrick bateman dick like imagine how much they would hate the countess which makes her even better like right. and then and again likeable returning to my theory of how this would make a great series like if you have the period piece film set in the 80s then you could do multiple period piece sequels of you know here's the 1600s here's the 1800s here's the like it would be so much fun like so much fun like it's all to have sebastian sebastian like 
experiments with orange vinyl and yes. then Michael Jackson sees him and rips off his look yes! in the music video. Like there's so many moments you I can know. just see like, like it, being It's amazing. like vampire quantum leap and I think yeah. it would be fucking brilliant. Yeah. I also, before we move on, I wanted to say, because you mentioned the titling of this movie and how it... The, nightlife. Yeah, yeah. A, almost originally Nightlife. Another one of my favorite facts I found was the uh, the list of international titles for the movie, which are hysterical. So the, these are some of the international titles, of course, translated into English. The French got Seduction Has Teeth. Um, well, actually, they got two because they had Seduction Has Teeth and also Vampires Forever, apparently. Don't know why they got two. Brazil got Virgin Boy Wanted. <laughs> um, I Love a Vampire in Argentina. Just One Bite in Hungary. And most confusingly, Poland got this movie just called Kiss Princess. <laughs> yep. Why? <laughs> It makes kiss absolutely Princess, where no did she sense. Kiss me? That's yeah. A surprise. <laughs> yeah. Like, who even gave a kiss? Like, I, because I, I don't think the Countess kissed anyone. So presumably, the Kiss Princess is Robin. Like, I mean, I think they were hoping. I think the guys were hoping for oral sex. Yeah. And just like, yeah. I think uh, it's a, a very loose. I'm not giving any credit to the man. No. I'm sorry. No credit where credit is due because no credit is right. due. Um, right. Yeah, but so I will continue to be a once bitten apologist because yes, it is uh, a fun movie, but I will hold out hopes for our our period piece remake into uh, a full franchise. Uh, be one something day. MTV could do mm-hmm. if they did Teen Wolf, they can do this. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. I think it would be great. Would love to see Helen Roden play Robin again. Oh, that, God. See, that's a girl who can deliver a need of the balls. <laughs> that's. I want to see that. That's mm-hmm. the movie I want to see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, God. That would be fun. That would be fun. <laughs> so now we move on to the next great 80s piece. Another another place that takes up too, way too much way too much space in my iTunes playlist <laughs> is Fright Night. Yeah, if I've learned anything Thanks. on this podcast, is that you pick 80% of our movies based on the soundtracks. So. Yeah. Like, moments. So... The composer on, well, there were a lot of, there were a lot of good pieces of music on the 2010 remake of Fright Night with Colin Farrell. That is Mm -hmm. totally worth checking out. Um, It is a great remake. Um, The thing that got me very upset, very let down was that Come to Me, which was originally composed by Brad Fidel, was not on on the soundtrack. I, I, I remember listening to it, watching it, and going, where's come to me? Where, where's come to me? What the, what the uh-huh. fuck is this? Because we got everything else. We got apples. We got we got, we got got a hot next door neighbor. We got, like, he's skeeving. He's going to, like, literally, like, fuck everything. You know? Like, that, that's 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 going to happen. All right, cool. But, like, where's come to me? It's like, okay, fine. We don't, we don't need, we don't need the retainer, I guess. Whatever. But, like, where's come to me? But, yeah. So... For me, the soundtrack was kind of like a big thing. The other thing was, um, I think Peter Muller. Peter Muller? It was Peter Muller. Yeah, it was Peter Muller. Um, you know, uh, vintage poster artist uh, Peter Muller did the poster art for Fright Night. There's a lot of there's a lot of great work surrounding this entire yeah. piece, right? Um, so you want to talk about Charlie Sheen? Why don't you tell that? <laughs> Why don't you tell the story of, of what this of, of why don't you tell the, the, the plot synopsis for this? Because oh, you're going to do this Christ. better than me. 
Whew. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've got a. I've got a flashback because this this episode recording time, has been. It was yeah. Horny boy in the eighties. So, once upon a time, young Charlie Brewster, uh, played by William Ragsdale, almost played by Charlie Sheen, which I consider a bullet dodged. <laughs> yeah, a bullet dodged. <laughs> but, <laughs> man, if this had been Charlie Sheen, it would have been a very different drugs? movie. Drugs? Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of drugs. I don't know what young Charlie Sheen was up to at this point, but it, drugs. Um, <laughs> drugs. Yeah, yeah, they they didn't, they honestly, the, the reason they did not cast Charlie Sheen in this is because they thought he was too cool and had too much star quality and wanted more of a kid next door, which is a little bit of a burn to William Ragsdale, but they were right. Mm. Anyway, young Charlie Brewster is living the suburban dream, um, going to high school, doing his thing. He has a cute girlfriend, Amy, played by Amanda Bierce. I th- what do we think mm-hmm. it is? Bierce? Yeah. Yeah. Amanda Bierce. Played by Amanda Bierce. Um, they're, you know, just trying to get it on in their mom's house, as many, many a teen has done. Um, but, uh, of course, things are distracted from the, the original course of action when Charlie notices that there are new neighbors, um... At the house next door and uh, they start doing really weirdly suspicious things like oh I don't know carrying what looks like bodies in and out of the basement late at night <laughs> all sorts of sketch activities which unfortunately distract him from again getting it on with his girlfriend um, because as it turns out when your girlfriend has agreed to have sex with you for the first time the thing to do is not to pull out a pair of binoculars and look out the window and say hey look what these guys are doing while she has her tits out um, mm-hmm. so their relationship is a Sound little bit advice. rocky. Write this, write this down, guys. Yeah, write I know. Take notes. Take notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so their relationship is a little bit rocky. And poor Charlie is like, what the fuck is going on at my neighbor's house? Um, and Charlie is also a huge aficionado of horror and late night horror mm-hmm. television, um, uh, particularly the horror chronology series hosted by Peter Vincent, who's totally not an amalgamation of Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. (laughs) It is. The role was written for Vincent Price and he didn't want it. Um, So instead, we get delightful Roddy McDowell uh, playing Peter Vincent, a super hokey TV host, but Charlie keeps trying to get people to believe that his neighbor is actually a vampire. He goes to his mom, who thinks it's ridiculous. He goes to his friends, who think it's ridiculous. He goes to the police, who actually take him up on it and go to the house where they they meet um, Billy Cole, who's the uh, basically the retainer for Chris Sarandon, Jerry Dandridge, the uh, the assumed vampire neighbor. Um, they basically laugh in his face uh, and are like, "You fucking teen! What do you think you're doing?" So poor Charlie starts losing his goddamn mind. Um, He's putting garlic and crosses all over the place, inexplicably lighting his whole room in candles for beautiful mood lighting and incredible fire hazards. And he's accepted his demise as Jerry Dandridge, the the neighbor vampire, begins to just inch his way further and further into into his life by being a little too smooth with his mom um, and eventually, you know, breaking into his house at night and holding him up against the wall by his throat as, you know, as good neighbors do. So, <laughs> so then, of course, Charlie, Charlie turns with the advice of his friends to the one man he believes can help him, Peter Vincent. Now, Peter is 
truly the most glorified hack bit actor the world has ever seen. Um, and he knows it. He has no illusions about being a good actor. In fact, he's just gotten fired. So when a teen shows up saying he believes he has a real vampire, um, Peter Vincent does everything short of saying, get the fuck out of my face. Uh, <laughs> But as movie magic works its way through, his friends get more frantic, Charlie gets more frantic, and finally Amy offers Peter Vincent a bunch of money to show up and lie to Charlie's face and say, no, 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 he's not a vampire at all, go back to bed, don't worry about it. So the whole crew, this is Charlie, this is his girlfriend Amy, this is their his, his really sketchy and manic friend, Evil Ed, you know he's a good friend if his name includes the word evil, and of <laughs> course Peter Vincent, they all show up at Jerry Dandridge's house to prove that he is not a vampire with some phony holy water that Peter Vincent has because he has 8,000 movie props, everything's going great. Jerry is like, oh, ho, ho, not a vampire here. Everything's fine. Um, Charlie feels like he's being gaslit and they're about to walk out the door when Peter Vincent realizes that Jerry doesn't cast a reflection in a mirror and suddenly shit gets real. <laughs> they get, yeah, they get the fuck out of Dodge. Um, everyone can tell that Peter Vincent is freaked out. But, you know, he tries to pretend everything is fine. Things are not fine. Things rapidly descend into chaos. We won't ruin too much, but in, you know, in no specific order, there's a lot of fights, a lot of chase scenes, that is. Um, Jerry Dandridge decides he's going to seduce Amy because she looks like a lost love. Honestly, I personally think a slight to his very gay live-in retainer butler man, Billy Cole, but <laughs> maybe they have a happy polycule. I don't know. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also the whole seducing teen girls, but when she's the reincarnation of his lost love, what is age, I guess? <coughs> um, so... <laughs> So, Charlie and Amy are being chased all over town. Um, Jerry Dandridge does manage to get his hands on Evil Ed and turn him into a vampire who goes after Peter Vincent. Peter Vincent is finally like, oh, fuck, things are real, and essentially neuters Evil Ed, potentially, but not really fatally. And then we come to the big showdown where Jerry has gotten Amy and Charlie and uh, and Peter Vincent have to go in and save his lost love. We get this big dramatic hoo-ha of fighting and dodging and trying to use silver bullets and holy water and crosses and everything that is a little incoherent, but it's fine. And eventually everybody's turned to stone and fire by sunlight. It's very exciting. There are lots of fun prosthetics. The day is saved. Amy is no longer a vampire. Everybody's happy. They can smooch and go back to their lives. Peter Vincent somehow gets his job back on TV and everyone's happy again except Jerry Dandridge and Indieval Ed. And presumably also Billy Cole because he turned to a puddle of goo. But! <laughs> <laughs> We have a, a delightful, delightful 80s movie. Um, this one is so much fun. It's, again, like, I feel like it's a little bit of a slight to, to once bitten to pair it with Fright Night because Fright Night takes so many of the things that, that once bitten almost did right and actually does it right. I mean, it right. yeah, it says a lot. So writer-director Tom Holland said if he could make a sequel to any of his movies, ignoring the reboots, he would choose this one. And he announced in October of 2020 that he's writing a sequel to the original that 
interestingly, ignores the existing Fright Night 2, the reboot, and the reboot sequel. <laughs> but mm-hmm. his whole idea is he wants the original cast. He wants Charlie as a single father who inherits his mom's old house um, and moves in with his two teenage children. His kids would, of course, become convinced that there was something dark and sinister living in the neighbor's house, which is evil Ed, notably not dead, or rather undead but not killed, trying to resurrect uh, Jerry Dandridge. And... Hey. I think it would be fun. And if this is a movie that has held on for so long in his head and for so many people's heads, it's it's also a great movie if you're inter- researching this. There's so much facts, so many facts about production and behind the scenes stuff, partially because there was really little oversight during the production of this. Um, Thank God for that. Exactly. So the studios were, this was their lowest budget movie at the time. They were totally devoted to Jamie Lee Curtis and other movies that were coming out at the time so they turned a blind eye and tom holland pretty much got free reign to do what he wanted which was great he also invited fangoria one of the fangoria writers in who was there for a ton of the rehearsal and filming process which means that there's tons of interviews and content that came out of that as well as the fact that uh that um what's his face um roddy mcdowell he was a passionate recorder. He constantly had like his home video camera on set and was doing recordings for tons of the rehearsal and taping process. So there's so much chronicled in terms of the behind the scenes of this. And it's a very fond memory for all of the actors. So there's a wealth of information you can find. Um, And I mentioned a little bit of the, the, the working process when we were talking about Once Bitten because Tom Holland started as a theater guy. So when he started working on this, this was one of his first like written and directed pieces. He was finally given the go ahead to direct it, given some of the panache he had developed with some of his previous writing. Um, he made sure that they had two weeks that was just rehearsal time to work out all the kinks and do this character development and rewrites. Every character got I mean, every actor got input on their character. We got these great moments, like with Chris Sarandon working in the the backstory of his reincarnated love, all of the stuff. There are so many drafts and rewrites that went through this. And then by the time they actually got to filming, they all knew the script so well that they recorded almost every scene in just two or three takes and got to move through it. So it was a pretty freaking smooth recording process. It was really well done. Yeah, it's really well done from start to finish. And especially knowing that they were working on a shoestring budget for a lot of this like we talked in the in the watch along about the prosthetics being cobbled together night before by like set design people and it turned out freaking amazing i'd like to just hone in on that for one second the bat they use because you mm-hmm. pointed out in the what in the watch along but yeah. i do want to i want to bring that up again the bat the, the bat skeleton that we use for jerry at the end mm-hmm. is kind of interesting because that apparently was deemed to be too scary for the yes. library ghost scene in Ghostbusters. Don't and I know sat how. there and I actually, <laughs> there were moments I thought, what the fuck were you, again, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. It's like, that bat is nowhere near to as scary as the gray lady, Eleanor Twitty. Yep. When you're looking at the fucking bat <laughs> and you're looking at Eleanor Twitty, I'm like, look, dude, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you, but that lady gave me nightmares. That bat is bullshit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they're like, yeah, yeah, that could be bad. Like, dude, did you see the dogs that you put into the film? Because the dogs, the dogs were also not exactly it the is, friendliest looking characters It's such a fucking ever. roulette wheel of what gets past the MPA. Like, the, the whole like, Yo, rating system thing is... Real. It's so funny. And especially, the funniest thing 
I, I highly recommend that everyone follows animators online because I started <laughs> following a lot of like people in animation on Twitter because I follow so many artists, you guys, just so many. And I no regrets. This is not a complaint. This is a thing of enthusiasm. <laughs> but because of this, like I've gotten to see some kind of behind the scenes stuff. The things that animators talk about, specifically people who work on children's shows, like PG kind of shows, are like the specific calls that we've had to make are so ridiculous. Like, you cannot show fire. Like, you can't show red fire in animation because that is dangerous and might encourage children to light fires. But if it's green, then it's magical fire. And that's a-okay. You cannot have somebody sitting on the hood of a car while it drives but if you put a seatbelt, if you just draw a seatbelt over them on the hood of a driving car, just fine, because they're buckled in. <laughs> like, the this fixes so and much. calls that they have to make are so So now ridiculous. we know why Scareglow and He-Man existed mm-hmm. and yeah. <laughs> uh, why the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles rode on the roof as much as they did. Yep. All so right. There are eight bajillion the little behind-the-scenes secrets. So I'm sure that this was some kind of MPA, like, weird thing that happened with the bat i would love to get more details on it but i simply don't know but <laughs> i i i looked for details too i didn't find them but it still blows me away that the bat was considered less scary than this haggard looking you know rotted out body baffling 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 yeah and i yeah, i still don't get it no idea but speaking of bats and also going back to Christopher Sarandon's character development. I want to retouch because I we I mentioned this in the watch along, but the the fact that Chris Sarandon, that Jerry Jandridge was eating apples the whole time, um, and we talked about how this is he's basically this was another Christopher Sarandon choice. Just I'm gonna read a little section from the Wikipedia about the the rehearsal process. Um, Sarandon also did research into bats and discovered that most of the world's bat populations are frugivores. So he concluded, Jerry had a lot of fruit bat in his DNA. This explains why his character is frequently munching on apples, which Sarandon decided his character was using to, quote, cleanse his palate after draining blood from his victims. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I, uh, unsurprisingly, so uh, backstory again for anyone who has missed this part of my life, I really fucking like bats to the point where I went to Australia and worked at a bat hospital for a while and took care of several hundred flying foxes. Great time. Highly recommend everybody do it. Just iconic, delightful, wonderful time. Anyway, I really like bats. So I was like, oh, a place for me to do some bat research. Delightful. It did not turn into the, into the productive rabbit hole for podcast content that I hoped. I learned a lot about bats, but basically what I was wondering was how many omnivorous bats there are, because we know that there are a ton of fruit bats. We know that there are a very select number of vampire bats that actually drink blood, and then there are also tons of insect-eating bats. But when you're talking about bats, there are I know there are some that are omnivorous, but I was like, how about bats that eat blood and also eat fruit? Basically, there are none. So out of curiosity, I looked into this. Vampire bats are super duper highly specialized. Basically, it start, they started with bats that ate mosquitoes and other insects that drank blood and were like, hey, 
let's just remove the middleman and get the blood straight into my tum-tum. Um, but they're super duper specialized. They cannot eat anything else. There are omnivorous bats, however, and just one, you know, fun, fun little thing. If you look into omnivorous bats, they were actually the sample size for a really cool study. Um, this is from Stony Brook University, uh, 2018. It's called an, a scientific article called A Survival Lesson from Bats Eating Variety Keeps Species Multiplying. So it's basically an article that looked at how omnivorous bats, the ones who were not strictly insectivores or frugivores, but could do a little bit of both, eat both fruit and insects, they led to a lot more genetic and species diversity. So specialized eaters who just ate one didn't really show a lot of changes, but populations that ate both, they started churning out more species and more prolific species changes than pretty much anything else. So in that sense, the idea of having an omnivorous bat that could, or an omnivorous vampire in this case, that could succeed drinking blood and eating fruit, or at least human foods, would ultimately again, theoretically, lead to the success of the population. So while there's not explicit basis in reality for bats that do eat fruit and do eat blood, there's theoretical scientific support for this. So I guess props to Chris Sarandon is what I'm saying. And, you know, a fun, fun addition to the vampire lore, I suppose. And it's only the, the funny thing is Sarandon gave such depth to that character. I don't understand why it wasn't taken and used when we did the, the, the reboot. Because yeah. in the reboot, Peter Tennant says that he basically, that, that Dandridge came from a, a breed called the Snackers. That's so um, cute. Or he, that was his nickname for them, which I thought was cool. And that they came from um, the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen, or at least not in my time, I've never seen a fruit bat in the Mediterranean. Nope. Um, they are not there. I know that I can't say that we've had a variety of bats all over the world, but I have never seen anything that was that would come near to a fruit bat in the Mediterranean. No, there there are and no so, mega bats that are that usually go that far north of the equator. <laughs> nope. So I did I did find it interesting. I can think of a lot of places like in um in the Balearic Islands on the island of Mallorca, which is next to Ibiza. Mm -hmm. Um it's actually Ibiza. Um <laughs> The, the national symbol is a bat because the legend is that a bat helped win, win like one of the major battles for independence on the island. Mm -hmm. So um, I love that. You know, if you go to Mallorca, you just see all these bats all over the place in terms of like statues and royal heralds and everything. Um, but again, you don't see anything having to do with fruit bats. No, that's an incredibly so weird choice. Yeah, because, I mean, again, Your it seems like he did even less research than, yeah, less research than Chris Randon did, because it's very easy to find out that right. there are many islands, like tropical locales full of delicious fruits where fruit bats yep. do live. If you look in, you know, around Oceania, South Asia, even mm -hmm. South America, there are plenty of options for you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just it, right? It feels yeah. like... Today, we don't think as much as we did yesterday, which isn't a good sign in terms of putting together our lore. So, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. rough because, again, like, I think this has such interesting potential as somebody who really likes bats and really likes vampires. And also, like, I spent, look, I, again, I, I, as much as I hate to bring Twilight into vampire conversations, as somebody who grew up as a vegetarian and also a fan of Twilight with the notion of vegetarian vampires and their notion of vegetarianism was just 
eating wild animals versus humans, the idea of vampires who actually can sustain themselves on vegetable material, super interesting, makes the idea of vampirism a lot more sustainable in areas where you have limited human feeding opportunities. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff you could go into there. And just from a scientific perspective on omnivores and stuff, like the idea of something that's blood specialized being able to process cellulose, super fascinating. Anyway, that is something that could be super interesting. Like, this is something where you get more into, I think, the sci-fi version of vampires in many ways like but Which that's is still a, important i know i think is an amazing genre i love that kind of overlap like it doesn't have to be a space vampire to talk about science um but developments in the vampire species that make them more sustainable and ultimately more threatening are always an interesting addition to canon Right, and understanding why and how and why they were beaten back makes it even mm-hmm. more interesting, right? Because there's such they come off as such a formidable force. The question is only, well, other than the daylight, as human beings have been getting dumber mm-hmm. and dumber, what really stops them? Yeah, so. no, I mean, I I spent a lot of time thinking about like. I will confess, like, while I was doing my skincare this morning, I watched several videos on on sunscreen and the new uh, UVB blockers that we've introduced and stuff. Like, I do, I am forced to wonder if, if you know, vampires could just really slather, slather on some modern sunscreens and get a big sun hat. Like, would they really die because of the sun? I don't know. I think there's more to explore. <laughs> Give me a vampire absolutely slathered in SPF 150. <laughs> set loose slimy but threatening (laughs) they use that um deacon frost uh played by stephen dorf does that in blade back in the 90s Mm -hmm. um it's actually a funny moment because wesley snipes's character goes your mascara is running (laughs) (laughs) i i mean truly relatable content (laughs) i i thought you'd like it yeah but this is exactly the thing of like vampires in a modern context have legitimate questions and also comedic questions and there's so much to go into for both um yeah yeah those these are the the questions that swirl through my mind (laughs) okay now before we wrap up i do want to include my rant about bisexual vampires No. Yeah. So, so this is this is something I joked in the watch along. By the time after we watched Once Bitten, and then by the time we got to Fright Night, and we basically I made the joke that all vampires are bisexual. And while I obviously still stand by that because great take, I didn't realize how much literature there was on bisexual vampires, and I want to talk about it a little bit. Um, especially, you know, I mean, this is now our June slash July episode, but so we started this episode in Pride Month, so I want to talk about queer content. Um, and there are several authors and researchers who have written about the way that vampires have been really consistently portrayed as bisexual, or at least heavily bi-implied, to emphasize their hunger, both physical and sexual. And this is just yet another subsection of the much larger issue of queer-coded villains, which is, of course, the consistent attribution of strongly queer traits to evil characters in order to make them seem more 
evil by indulging in taboo and correspondingly to continue to vilify queerness and also confuse a lot of queer kids who grew up watching cartoon cartoons going wait why is the villain so hot so you know if you want to dive into this more the concept was really thrust into uh, the internet consciousness i think with rowan ellis's short and sweet video entitled why are disney villains gay slash queer which was posted about four years ago on youtube and there have been many more extended deep dives into the topic both on youtube and in many 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 text medium since then, but that's a good jumping off point to get started with. But in this case specifically, the bi vampire is nothing new. You can go way back in Western literature to Carmilla in 1872 or even earlier. You can look at John Polidori's The Vampire written in 1816. A little bit of history on that one. Polidori was uh, Lord Byron's personal physician and he spent a very wet and wild summer in 1816 in an Italian villa with Percy and Mary Shelley, Claire Claremont, and of course Byron himself who was fleeing rumors of sodomy back in England. So that same very horny summer was also a little writing experiment between friends which produced Frankenstein and produced Polidori's vampire Lord Ruthven who was as aggressively queer and sexual as you could be in 1816 while still getting a publishing deal and of course based very directly on Lord Byron. This opened the door on the whole romantic literary vampire genre and I do mean romantic as in the era not as an actual romance but we'll get there don't worry. So now the, the bisexual vampire was horror gold for the Victorians. In 2019, there's an article called uh, Are All Vampires Bi? written by Siobhan Ball for the aptly named bi.org website. Um, and it's summed up pretty neatly. She says, Victorian sexual repression, or rather the performative respectability they were forced to play in public, lent itself perfectly to this blood drinking as a metaphor for sex, and the necessary ambiguity of it made space for queerness. We always project the things we fear onto the other, real or mythical, and the bi-vampire was a Victorian double whammy. After all, the only thing more threatening than a queer is a queer who might also fuck your wife. Um, beautiful writing. <laughs> so, vampire media through the ages has clearly exhibited that we are still scared and horny for barely closeted vampires, as we have two, vamp two bi vampires from 1985 sitting right here in front of us this month. Um, but interestingly enough, as vampires have become icons of the romance genre in the past few years, they've become painted as increasingly heterosexual. You'd better believe that good good Mormon Stephanie Meyer wasn't going to let her sparkly Twilight vampires have premarital sex, much less dabble and sodomy, and that has spilled over into other properties as well. So as soon as vampires got hot, they got straight. <laughs> so I do want to, yeah, huge shame um, for my own personal vested interests and plot arcs. But I, because of that, I do want to say that this doesn't mean you have to stop liking bisexual vampires or any other queer villains. On the contrary, I'm bi and I will continue to be hyped as hell every time another powerful bi vampire shows up because they're hot and they're cool and they make me ask the classic queer question of do I want them or do I want to be them? And the answer, of course, is yes to both. But right. the takeaway, for me at least, is that it's just, it's good to be conscious about the media that you're absorbing. Be mindful of the tropes that are being spoon-fed to you and the mentality that they are meant to enforce so that you can move forward as an educated consumer and not perpetuate the same negative stereotypes in your own work and creative fields that are drowning in queer villains and parched for queer heroes. So, like, 
develop this shit rather than indulging the same old tired stereotypes and create something innovative. In my writing group, Fright Club, we have this conversation a lot. And my solution to it is to not get rid of the stereotype. Mm -hmm. My solution is to juxtapose it. Mm -hmm. My solution is not to eliminate it. Because, you see, I also find that there's a lot of times where we're even talking about women as witches, men as witches, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about empowerment. We're talking about different types of dynamics. And it gets more complicated. And I think that, like, I'd never want to eliminate Dr. Frankenfurter from from our oh, God, canon, no. yeah. right? Like, everything about Tim, what Tim Curry did in that role, you know, forged a completely new path. Mm-hmm. But what I do think we need is we need to have an antithesis to Dr. Frankenfurter. And I think that we need to have... I think the easiest way to put this is like if we think about it in terms of Friday the 13th, there's there's this idea of a slasher chasing a bunch of beautiful naked women through the woods and he's going to kill them. Uh, what I would like to do is instead, and I've told the other writers I would do this as well, like if it would be like Idris Elba, Ryan Reynolds, you know, if they'd be willing to strip bare naked and go yep. running through the woods and get killed <laughs> by a woman. Um, I'll do the same thing. I'll strip naked too, just to run by them. You know, I'll you are do the incredibly same thing. Get, generous. To, yeah, totally get naked, <laughs> butchered in the name of like you know, you know, because it's not about it's not about getting rid of it. Because no. see, see, getting rid of it doesn't solve it. See, it still happened. That transgression was done. What we mm-hmm. need to do is we need to put the shoe on the other foot. You know. Yeah, yeah. That, I that's mean, what needs, that's what once needs to you be done. recognize these tropes, you can play with them. You can do more with right. them. There's so much opportunity to right. Just to as, empower as say, rather than than bring people down with it. And correct, they're and fun. not punch down with it. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, precisely. Yeah, right. and again, yeah. just like we talked about with the difference between Once Bitten and Fright Night too. So much of it comes down to nuance too. Like, we're not saying that villains can't be queer like obviously every character should have a rich and nuanced personal life but make sure it's a rich and nuanced personal life and not just another way to villainize them well i think that the important thing is that and i I think disney finally hit on it with loki Mm was where loki says to owen wilson's character uh tom hiddleston says to owen wilson's character if there's one thing I know, it's that no one who's bad is ever truly bad, and no one who's good is ever yes. truly good. Yes. And I think that Disney has been Disney has definitely called itself out on its own shit with its Once Upon a Time series over the years. Mm-hmm. Definitely knew, um, definitely start to recognize that every person had their reasons for doing what they were yes. doing. And I think that you can have a true villain. You can have somebody Certainly. who's a complete asshole. See also William from uh, Westworld or Thanos. Thanos is a fantastic example of a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just that, you know, he means well, but he's out of his fucking mind. You know, <laughs> there's there's also the, I'm just, you know, people are always like, good, bad, moral, immoral. I, I've got another answer for you. Fucking crazy. Yeah. Fucking crazy <laughs> is also a perfectly logical answer. Amen. Yeah, and I mean, so, yeah, the, the villain rarely thinks they're the bad guy. Right. <laughs> and like everybody has Never. their own motivations. And like, this is the thing, it's just the development into contemporary media is the idea that, you know, every character is a fully realized person and not an archetype. It's the difference between like, uh, Disney movies have been just playing on Aesop's fables for years and years and years where you have no. these strong character archetypes where there's, you know, the damsel in distress and the hero and the this and the that. And of course the evil, evil villain. 
And it's taken time to work past that into the idea that there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more content to I have. Think that that's I think that we're finally getting to that point where we're turning the mirror onto the audience and we're going, mm-hmm. you suck. You all suck. <laughs> you all suck. Yes. <laughs> all right. Congratulations. You all suck. You need to grow the fuck up, right? And the other mm-hmm. thing is also, um, we, we've we as an audience, we're kind of graduating into a new place where our audiences are smarter. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just that the what we're kind of waiting for is for our directors and our film critics to catch up because... Mm-hmm. We have a lot of film... Cr- we have, that's the thing. There's not exactly like... It's not like being an accountant, being a lawyer, where there's an oversight process. You don't have to take a test to be, in, to be, in a, um, to be a film critic. Nope. You don't have to take a test to be a director. You know, I met a lot of directors who were like daddy's trust fund kid. <laughs> met a lot of uh-huh. many directors. Uh-huh. Yeah. Many actors. I've, it's, met, it's basically, I've met a few. <laughs> Uh, and I've had to actually have that conversation more than a few times. Everyone's like, you mean there's nepotism? <laughs> I'm kind of like, well, like, what the fuck did you think was going on, you know? Yeah. And so, like, it's like, oh, let's, pro- you know, when we're talking about Hollywood, oh, let's look at the glamour and the tits and the gold and, and, and the light. It's like, hey, I got a better idea. Why don't you just get real about the fact that you guys are just as hypocritical, just mm-hmm. as shitty, just as uneducated as everyone else. And maybe you guys should grow the fuck yeah. up and get an no, education. No, and just being informed is so yeah. much of it. Like, because like it's just like you were saying, like, we don't need to get rid of these kinds of things. And the same thing, I think, with character archetypes, it's being aware of it creates better media because you can go all the way back to fucking Shakespeare. And if you yeah. look at Shakespeare scripts, they're obviously character archetypes, but some of the best moments in comedy and tragedy are when characters play opposite to their archetypes. And Absolutely. that's true in Commedia dell'arte. That's true in Shakespeare. That's true in all of these mediums where you have these character archetypes that everybody knows that they have expectations. And it's when those are, you know, when you have aberrations of your expectations that you get good media and that's still true so if we do a better job of recognizing these archetypes that we're being fed that just gives you more opportunity to invert it and to you know subvert expectations and create more and dynamic media your art. exactly exactly yeah. that i actually it's one thing it's may, may not be the most horror-esque of questions but i mm-hmm. often wonder who the first othello was in terms oh, God, of yes uh, like when, whenever I sit down and I like when I li- when I always wonder because we're never going to know the answer. I always not. wonder who who played because we're talking about queer coding villains. Mm-hmm. I always wonder who played Iago first. Oh, God, yes. I always wonder whether, was that a man? Was that a woman? Mm-hmm. Who played Iago first? Because Iago was the worst, slimiest piece of shit ever. Mm-hmm. Like it was the proto fuck boy, the proto asshole. Right? It was like it was the it was the person who created problems before anyone else because. Shakespeare always did a great job of like capturing like the porter in Macbeth. That was somebody mm-hmm. where it was a playful devil. But Iago was really a piece of shit. You know, like, he was really just a <laughs> Truly, complete yes. and utter piece <laughs> of shit. It's like, hey, you know what? I don't like this guy. I want to see so if I can I'm get him fuck to rape up his, his entire life. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna right. I'm gonna take everything you have and just shit on it. <laughs> right. It's like, let me just crash you into the ground. Why? Mean girls. That's why. Hashtag mean girls. It's just like, okay. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, but those are things I think about all the I time. Like, I wonder, and I always wonder, was it a woman who played Iago or was it a man? Because it's always something where we always, like, we attribute it to a, to a man. But it's like, with all the times he would play around with his roles on stage, I always wonder, who was the first Iago? Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting question, too, like, thinking about the history of theater, because everyone's like, oh, you know, every role was actually played by men, even the female roles. I'm like, Bullshit. Yeah, sure, if you're performing it at the Globe, maybe, but, like, yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of workshopping that happens, and I guarantee you there were female actors. <laughs> like, right. like just because that's not the one we have written in a history book, it doesn't mean right. it didn't happen. And, I mean, again, speaking of cheerful bisexuals, thank you, Shakespeare, for existing. God, you have God plenty, bless of, you. <laughs> plenty of horny sonnets and equal opportunity horny sonnets. And, of course, he worked with women. Like, I cannot believe that that man did not work with women. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah. I would. I love that. Is that is one of the things where, like, given a time machine, I would love to be a fly on the wall for those kinds of things. Yeah. Entirely self-interested, but <laughs> I, I'd love to know. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful mysteries. Truly, they really are. Yeah. Well, after that, you know, a little little tangent. <laughs> yeah. I hope y'all had fun this uh, this belated Pride Month. <laughs> I sure did. Well, if you liked Once Bitten, I suggest pairing it with other horror comedies with sexual themes like Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama from 1988 or My Demon Lover from 1987 or even Tales from the Crypt's Bordello of Blood from 1996. I also think Fright Night pairs well with most 80s comedy horrors with or without sex, so any of the <laughs> aforementioned or... Return of the Living Dead, Beetlejuice, or Critters. Like any of those. Mm -hmm. Any of those works. Yeah. Until next time, enjoy enjoy vampires. Enjoy the 80s. Enjoy summer. See y'all later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.